this week on the Back Table Podcast. Usually that pain is myofascial. If you ask about it, they're going to have pain. That pain will exacerbate when they get their periods, if they engage in intercourse, and they can clearly separate that pain from the usual cramps that they get from their periods. You can ask if they experience that pain with physical activity, when they exercise, when they lift, when they move, when they twist, bend, all that. But what makes that pain better? They'll say usually a heating pad or a hot or applying pressure, massaging the area. You know, those are cues that, that will lead you to think that is something musculoskeletal. Very rarely, I've seen patients that have chronic dysmenorrhea or chronic bowel symptoms or chronic bladder symptoms. Very rarely, I've seen them without myofascial pain. Usually, they will have myofascial pain. And I think that's one of the biggest diagnoses that we miss is that one, the musculoskeletal one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Backtable OBGYN. This is your host, Mark Hoffman, and we have another great guest today, Dr. Jorge Carrillo. He is an associate professor of OBGYN at the University of Central Florida College of Medicine, site director for the residency program, UCF HCA consortium program. He's a minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon and chronic pelvic pain specialist at the Orlando VA healthcare system, and also serving currently as vice president of the executive board for the International Pelvic Pain Society. That's like an impressive intro. Jorge, how are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Thanks for the intro and for the invitation. Really appreciate it. No, no, we're happy to have you here. And you're at the Orlando VA with Georgine Lambu, right? Yes. And Mario Castellanos is there as well, and Jess Veronic. Yeah, all of us, and also Chen Siu-Yang, who was a former fellow who joined us. So it's five of us. Dream team, man, you guys. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Jess and I were fellows at the same time. She's not to be messed with. She's fantastic. Oh, she's amazing. And she's the chief of surgery here, which is very impressive. Right. No, no, no. I, I spend a little time in our VA here in Lexington, and I... Whenever I have VA questions, I go straight to the top. She's the best. And talk to Jess. <laughs> yeah. Well, good. Well, so thanks for coming on the show. This is something that I think a lot of us, and especially in the MIGS world, but all, I think all OBGYNs have patients with chronic pelvic pain. It's something that certainly I didn't learn a ton about in residency. I was lucky to train at Michigan with Susie Asani and Arlene Song and a lot of folks who knew a lot about pelvic pain, but I don't think it's something that most of us out in our specialty get such specific training, but you seem like you've you've been to some places and work with some people who really have an incredible focus. Because you you train with Fred Howard. Yes, that was an eye opener to me. The first time I saw a patient with him was amazing because I was a third year resident and I was doing an elective with him. And at that point, you've seen pelvic pain patients, but not with that scope. You know, so the very first experience I had, I remember clearly it was a very young patient with 10 surgeries. She was in her mid-20s and she already had a hysterectomy and both ovaries removed. This is 2011, you know, like not 1980-something. <laughs> it's like 2011. And she already had all that. And I remember he grabbed that pelvic pain questionnaire that I'm sure you're familiar with. And, you know, he went through the questionnaire before walking into the room and he was like, oh, she has this, this, this. He mentioned like five diagnoses. And I'm like, okay. And then, you know, we walked into the room and yeah, he asked a few questions and he nailed every single diagnosis. And right there and then he offered the patient trigger points. 
you know, trigger point injections. And he did it and the patient started crying. She started crying. She was like, the pain is gone. Like after, I don't know how many years, the pain is gone. It's the first time that, that to me was, whoa, it was a big thing. I start questioning what we were learning, you know? So it was, uh, it was an eye opener. And I think that, that to me was the opening scene to probably so far what I've tried to do, you know, with my career. Yeah. So we like to have our guests sort of introduce themselves in that way for our listeners. So tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are in your, in your career. So as a resident with Fred Howard, clearly you're getting exposure to one of the sort of the leaders and pioneers in our field. But talk to us about how your career's developed and how it got to what you're doing now. Yeah. So I did med school in Colombia, South America. And then I came here to do residency and you know how the match process is. I end up, my base at that moment was Palm Beach Gardens in Florida. And then I saw that I matched in Rochester, New York. I'm like, whoa, what? <laughs> so, you know, I moved up there. I did my residency in a community program. And in my third year, I had the opportunity to then elective and a very good friend attending that worked at my hospital. He was actually from the university program. And he was the one who, you know, introduced me to the mixed world. He was like, hey, you know, there's this fellowship that is very cool. And I always loved anatomy and surgery as a lot of us that joined this fellowship. And he was like, I think I can get you a, an elective there with the director of the fellowship. And I was like, okay. And he said, you know, Fred Howard. And I was like, okay. You know, he got me the elective. I met Fred and... um you know, that month to me was my interview month, basically. And, you know, I rotated with him and saw him in the clinic, saw him doing procedures that I was like, whoa, I didn't know that we could do this, right? And then went through the interview process and all that, and I ended up matching with him. And that was the way how I started with pelvic pain. And then when I graduated, he retired and I ended up staying there in Rochester. There's a big pelvic pain center there, and we were taking care of a lot of patients, not only locally, but state-wise and even outside of state. And of course, he brought me into the IPPS world, which opened up a whole different kind of perspective on things. And from there, I met Georgine, I met Mario, Michael, Susie, Frank, everyone. And, um, you know, with the years, I started to get more involved in education, which is the other thing that I really love doing. And that actually led me to pursue a master's in health professions education and my involvement in the IPPS was great because I started in committees and then after working I, in a lot of things, I got involved with the foundations course, which is what we do for people who are starting to train in the pain world. And I was able to apply a lot of the things that I've learned with education there and then, you know, join the board of directors and then the executive board. And now, of course, I'm, I'm super excited of next year, you know, being able to be president and, you know, being able to help as much as I can in reshaping the education part, which to me is the biggest thing that I think that will help, you know, shorten that gap that right now exists between what we currently are supposed to be doing and what we actually do, you know, so. Well, no, that's incredible. And IPPS, the International Pelvic Pain Society, is, I think, all the years between AGL and SGS and I was going to APCO and ACOG, it just, it was like one meeting beyond what I could go to. And so it's something that I've only heard amazing things about. So many of our friends and colleagues go and, and are involved in the society. And I keep saying one of these days I'm going to do it, but maybe Columbia will be my, my time to go. Yeah. So, you know, again, you've talked about working with some pretty big names in pelvic pain, not just at IPPS, but also in your training and also your current position in Orlando with some friends of mine who I know are some of the 
people I call and talk to about pelvic pain, you know, I'm, I'm trying to ask you questions for which I will understand the answer because some of the stuff you guys talk about in your pelvic pain world is just so high level. I just sort of feel like they're such an idiot. But, you know, as we go through this, just I think if you, if you say it in a way that I can understand, then I think our listeners will be able to do the same. But I want to really take our audience through like your evaluation for the workup, but then also like basic treatments. And obviously this is a more than just an hour conversation, but just kind of an overview and as an intro for somebody who wants to get better at taking care of pelvic pain, what's your overall approach to evaluating patients in the clinic setting for chronic pelvic pain? I think that the very first thing and probably the one of the most important things that we probably want to do, not probably, that we should be doing is acknowledge the relationship between persistent pain and persistent pelvic pain specifically and trauma and apply what is called a trauma-informed care approach that probably a lot of people who are listening to this podcast have heard that word and you know some of them are probably very familiar, some other people are not. Applying a trauma-informed care approach, it really opens up the possibility of creating a safe environment for those patients, you know, who suffer from persistent pelvic pain. Because there's a very strong relationship with that. And and it's a very good opportunity to really strengthen the, the relationship with the patients, you know, but also to be able to open up a window for those patients to connect with us. We have to remember that a lot of these patients, which I'm sure you have that experience that you have seen them, they've seen multiple health professionals. They feel that they've been dismissed. They've gone to the emergency department several times and they're frustrated. They come with a lot of emotional package that, you know, they really just want to be heard and they just want to feel that they're taken serious. And trauma-informed care goes beyond just, you know, asking about sexual trauma or physical trauma. You know, it's something as simple as asking, how have been your prior experiences when you've had a pap smear? How well can you tolerate the public exam? Or, you know, feel free to stop me whenever I'm starting the exam, whenever I'm doing the exam, or if you feel that it's hurting a lot, or, or ask questions, or just something as simple as providing a mirror, allowing the opportunity for the patient to ask questions or, you know, to pick what they want to have examining at that appointment. And, and the reason why that's important is because it helps create and build up on that relationship. And it's something, trauma is something that we all have, you know, in some form. And it's something that really impacts, you know, the people's health. So being able to do that is like the very first and most important part of, of applying what is called a biopsychosocial model to treat pain. You know, we're in med school and in residency, we're taught that pain is directly because of an injury or a direct cause of something that is causing harm or damaging a tissue, right? And pain is much more complex than that. Pain is something that is individual and is something that is basically learned that has a lot of environmental factors that will affect it. You know, and, and stepping away from that notion that the pain is being caused because of that lesion that you have of endometriosis or because of that peripheral thing and that is what is going to give you the persistent pain is, is still going in that vicious cycle of, oh yeah, we need to remove that and cut that and that's it. The pain is going to get better. For conditions that really doesn't work that way, as we know and we have research for that. So I think that very first approach is the most important thing that you should do. And, and trauma-informed care starts the moment the patient walks into the office 
And it doesn't stop when they leave. It, it's something that you can carry on in, even into the pre-op area and the post-op area by communicating with the anesthesiologists and the nurses who are the very first people that they see when they wake up after a surgery, right? You know, so it's, it's something that really requires a teamwork. To me, is the most important thing that should it should start that way, you know, before anything else. I've been there as well when you have a patient who tells you what's going on. You say, I'm sorry you're going through that. And I believe you and just saying, I, I believe you. And I think so, I've had patients break down in, in the office and just say for so long, no one believed that I was in pain. They just they didn't. And I think it's hard when you don't know what cause, is causing a patient's pain. And as a physician to say, I don't know is tough for some people. But oftentimes just saying, I don't know what's going on right now. I believe you're in pain and we'll continue working with you. We can't promise results. We can promise effort. We can promise transparency. We can, you know, promise to apply what we know and what we think we know, and and to, and to provide a safe space for our patients. And 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 that trauma informed care, I think, is a nice way to. I think that's something we we all need to learn more about. But I think trying to imagine what it's like to be in that position. Obviously, I, you know, I can't put myself in other people's shoes in that sense. But at least to be sensitive to the fact that, you know, I don't know what the what these folks have gone through, but giving them the power to make the decisions in the office. I always tell folks, okay, this is your visit. I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you a couple of things that we can do that may provide additional information. Some of it is talking about certain things. Some of it is physical exam. Some of it is tests, like things like imaging studies. All of that is stuff we'll recommend and you get to choose of those things, which you think we should do. And if you don't want to do it today, then that's your choice. If you don't want to do it ever, that's your choice. Here's what I could learn from it. And if somebody says we should do something, and there's nothing we can learn from it or no benefit, then we probably shouldn't be doing it. And so everything we do will explain why we're doing it. And I think that that was something certainly I saw and, you know, I'm trying to model after some of the people that taught me, like like Susie Usani, who, again, her approach to pelvic pain was, I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. There's not, no one, and I went to a residency program where I'm very proud of it and proud of the training I had and proud of the, the experience and very grateful for the great training I got there. But I had not seen anything like that before. I think I had a similar experience where I was like, wait, did I go to the residency program because did I, did I graduate from residency because this is all like brand new. Like this is this is just so different than what I was taught. It's just it's a whole other world. It felt very almost like if someone had kept it a secret a little bit. And that was a shame because it's it's something that a lot of our patients deal with. So that trauma-informed care is something that, yeah, I do think it's important. It, it takes time. You know, in this healthcare environment, we don't always get as much time with our patients as we need. But or say, listen, we don't have time today. Let's come back another time. We'll continue the conversation. But um, but yeah, I think that's important. But I also want to touch on the other thing you said was the biopsychosocial aspect of chronic pelvic pain. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit on what what the definition of that is and what you mean by that? Because we I think we could talk for days and days about endometriosis surgery and the value and what treating what I believe is not necessarily a surgical problem with only with surgery. Obviously we do a lot of surgery, but yeah, what biopsychosocial model, what, what does that mean? Well, that, that's a concept that is not new. It's an old concept, but, and it's been applied to many things out, uh, you know, that are related to health. But when it comes to pain, basically what it tells is that it's acknowledging that pain usually, most of the times, has a biological component. Right? There's something biological or physiologically speaking that is leading to a, that painful experience. But the cycle and the social aspect of it are key when it comes to pain because a lot of it 
of the pain experience comes from the cognitive part and the cognition. And this, that's something that is learned. And this, you know, it goes along with the behavior that the patient has or that the person has in response to a painful stimulus. And that's really what makes the painful the pain experience different among individuals. You know, probably the way how I interpret pain is most likely very different compared to the way how you interpret pain because we both have different experiences of pain, right? And that pertains to the psychological aspect, you know, that cognitive part, the part of the behavioral part, right? Like the emotional part. And we know there's a very strong association between persistent pain and anxiety and persistent pain and depression and, you know, this other word, catastrophization, right, as well. And, you know, again, those are cognitive processes and behavioral processes that will impact that psychological part. And then you have the social aspect of it, which also plays a very important role, right? If we're in a society where pain, especially pain in, in women, is totally normalized, right? Is is something that, well, you have painful periods. Well, just take ibuprofen, Tylenol, and try to deal with it. Just keep going, right? Keep moving. Or someone calls in sick because they're having very bad periods and they're afraid of doing so because they're perceived that they're going to be looked at weak, right? So they don't speak up and they, you know, and in that aspect, the care is delayed, right? And because there's actually studies that we all know, we always talk about the delay in diagnosis and, you know, especially with endometriosis, seven to 10 years and all that. There's actually studies looking at why that could happen and what factors happen. There are factors that come from the patient side, the society side, and there are factors that come from the medical aspect, the health professionals aspect. And the, the part that comes from the society part is basically normalization and the lack of education, the lack of talking more about how it's not normal to experience pain with intercourse. It's not normal to have periods that are debilitating that are, don't allow people to actually carry normal functions. So those studies are out there and that's information that we know. Yeah, I mean, the number of people who were just told, well, this is just what it's like to have a period. And sometimes it's not even intentional. You know, their, their parents, their mom might've gone through very similar things. They had endometriosis as well, or had a long, long history of, of painful menstrual cycles. And it wasn't until they got their hysterectomy that they felt better. And so there's this sort of like familial or in a sense, cultural understanding of this is the way it's going to be for me. I hear that a lot. Well, this, I, I know I'm going to get my hysterectomy too, because my mom and my aunts and my grandma all had theirs. So it's kind of like, this is the path. And so understanding people's social and cultural backgrounds enough, just again, that's part of getting to know a patient, which in healthcare these days, as I said a minute ago, can be challenging, but that relationship with these patients who are dealing with such complex chronic things, establishing that trust is huge because they've oftentimes been, and I don't think it's because of doctors who didn't care or didn't, didn't try. It was that they are dealing with really complex things that haven't been managed in a way that has provided the results that these folks deserve. So yeah, I think, I think it's, it, it's clearly tough. I think it's one of the toughest things that we do, but I also think it's not something that is taught as uniformly and as consistently as some of the other things in our specialty. And this is what I, this is what excites me about AGL, about IPPS, about MIGS in general, is there is this huge field with endometriosis, fibroids, pelvic pain, that is not necessarily as well understood and taught over four years of residency. And so it's something that huge opportunity for our patients and for those of us who, who do this to learn more about it. So when you meet a patient in clinic, you know, you establish that rapport. I mean, again, like you said, before they walk in the office, let alone your clinic room, 
the staff, how they communicate. I'm sure you have all of that stuff that you've addressed in your clinic. But when you're meeting them with the first time, again, so history, you've talked about the pain survey. Talk to me a little bit about history, about sort of what you guys do sort of pregame. Do you send your patients surveys? And I know Susie would do that and get these 30-page surveys back and someone had to enter all in. We don't do that. It's not something I can ask my staff to do or I haven't asked my staff to do, but do you guys do anything to send out sort of pregame surveys and things to your patients? Yeah. So there are, as we've been discussing, there are surveys that are done already. So, you know, for people who are interested in this, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's like the IPPS is probably the most well-known one that um, is a compilation of multiple validated scales that look at different aspects of pain beyond just gynecological and, you know, it's a 14-page questionnaire, you know, and, and the intention of the questionnaire is to give it to the patient before the appointment so they can fill it up at their own pace, taking their time, you know, probably having water, or tea, or coffee, whatever they can drink, right? And then just take their time and really reflect on their path. And, you know, with those surveys, we explore basic things about the pain, but of course we focus on the OB and the gynecological story, but we have embedded their questionnaires like the Rome 4 criteria, the PUFF questionnaire for bladder pain syndrome, NANS criteria for pudendoneuralgia, the DASS scale, which is a score looking at depression, anxiety, and stress. The PROMISE questionnaire is there. There's a pain map. There is a visual analog scores of pain, how much it impacts daily activities, things that will make the pain better or worse. It's, it's a very extensive and detailed questionnaire. But really, the, the utility of those questionnaires is that it gives you a lot of information beforehand that as I was sharing at the beginning of our talk, you know, what Fred did when I saw him that, you know, he grabbed the questionnaire and he went through it in like five, 10 minutes and read and kind of that by itself gave him an idea of what to dig in more, you know, when he walked into the visit and it wasn't like that open ended question of, hi, what brings you in today? Because again, these patients have very complex histories and, you know, they have a lot of information to unload in the visit. And if you open that window, it's going to be very overwhelming for both, you know, and, and, and the key thing about these visits, I believe, is to be able to have an organized mind. You know, after years of using the, the questioners, I've came up with a strategy that kind of helps me remember what to ask that I've been teaching that strategy, you know, whenever I had the opportunity to talk about the topic which is using an acronym PAPS. The first P is related to pain. So go back to medical school, ask basic things about pain, quality, quantity, referral pattern, uh, intensity, associated factors, alleviating factors, uh, aggravating factors, treatments done in the past and all that. And that's for the pain in general. And, and the patients are going to walk into the office saying, it hurts here and I have pain here, but it's our job to give them words and be like, okay, so but what kind of pain do you experience here Versus is it similar to the pain that you experience when you urinate? It's similar to the pain that, you, you know, we have to help them kind of tease that out. And the A from that acronym stands for associated organs. So basically to me, that means starting off with a simple question, is the pain cyclical or not, right? As a gynecologist, probably it's very easy for us to kind of dig in a little bit more in cyclical pain, right? It's more towards the GYN aspect and you ask about periods and length and heaviness and how intense they are and how dysfunctional they are and what have they done in the past surgeries, medications, if it worked, not work, all that stuff. All the GYN history that we're used to ask goes in that part. 
But the non-cyclical pain, again, is when you start digging a little bit more into, and this goes with remembering that pain usually affects different organs. And, you know, by the way, I love that episode that you guys did on bladder pain syndrome. It was great because it touched a lot of the complexity of what visceral pain is and how complex it is. We have to deal with visceral convergence and visceral somatic convergence, which really confuses all. But basically, it's a reminder that patients that have 10 years, 15 years of dysmenorrhea, very rarely are going to have just dysmenorrhea. They might have myofascial pain as well. They might have you know, symptoms related to the bladder. They might have symptoms related to bowel. So we need to ask those things, and especially those common conditions that are associated with dysmenorrhea, bladder pain syndrome, IBS, myofascial pain, put endoneurology, vulvodynia. So that A is to remind you that there's other systems and organs that usually could lead to pelvic pain, not just reproductive. Then the P of the PAPS acronym is for psychological, psycho, psychosocial factors. So asking about depression, asking about trauma, asking about catastrophization. Nowadays, we're using different scales to measure that that are very short. So you can use one of those short questionnaires to gather that information. Especially catastrophization is an important one that we rarely ask about, especially if we're about to offer procedures, it's important. As well as the last letter of the acronym, which is S, which is about sensitization, you know, and we have now more research associating endometriosis with central sensitization. Describe what sensitization is, central versus peripheral. Sensitization basically is a physiologic process. It's different than nociplastic pain. And we need to understand that because you might hear both terms. Nociplastic pain is a type of pain that was recently put out, uh, different than somatic and neuropathic pain. You know, and, and the same with nociplastic pain is that there is pain that is not necessarily because of the stimulation of nociceptors. It's a, it's a pain that is at a, a level of complexity deeper compared to somatic pain and neuropathic pain. Sensitization is a physiologic process that most of the people that suffer from nociplastic pain have. But it's also a physiologic process that can occur or can come from somatic pain, visceral pain, and neuropathic pain. So someone who suffers from somatic pain, like myofascial pain, could become sensitized long-term. Someone that suffers from visceral pain, like dysmenorrhea, endometriosis, or IBS, they can become sensitized. Same thing with neuropathic pain. What does being sensitized to a pain mean? It means that at some point, the physiologic, the way in which the central nervous system and the peripheral system interprets pain is dysfunctional. So people often that suffer from sensitization will experience two very important things, hyperalgesia and allodynia. Hyperalgesia is when you experience pain from a painful stimulus, but a pain that is a hyper-response from that painful stimulus. And allodynia is when you experience pain from a non-painful stimulus. And those are just two things for someone to be, and there's no current, you know, there's no current clinical framework on how to make the diagnosis of sensitization specifically for pelvic pain. But clinically speaking, you can come up with a diagnosis if the patient that comes to your office tells you that has pain in different body parts, if they present with multiple pain diagnosis, such as fibromyalgia, chronic low back pain, endometriosis, IBS, bladder pain syndrome, bulbodynia, if they have, have hyperalgesia or allodynia, if they do not respond to opioids or pain medications, if they do not respond to peripheral interventions to pain. So those patients who are that complex that comes with all those things, 
you should suspect sensitization. And it's important to recognize those patients because those patients, as we're gathering from this information, they do not respond that well to peripheral treatment. So we need to usually start them on medications that will help them from the central nervous system, such as anticonvulsants, gabapentin, pregabalin, antidepressant tricyclics, SNRIs like nilofaxine or duloxetine. And also there has to be a cognitive part or a cognitive component that will need to be treated, you know, usually with CBT and, and, uh, and a health professional, a mental health professional. So the, what they're finding now with the research that I was saying that Dr. Young in Canada is looking into the relationship with sensitization and endometriosis is that patients, they're seeing that patients that have a high number in the CSI, which is the scale for central sensitization, the inventory, they are seeing that those patients do not respond that very well to surgery. And that's, that's something that is very important to understand, right? Because those patients need to be taking very carefully the care and, you know, like actually connect them beforehand with a physical therapist, with a mental health therapist, and, you know, start them on those central medications to kind of bring down that central nervous system because we're about to inflict more trauma and more pain. And usually they do not respond that well afterwards. Well, obviously it's complicated. It's complex. I mean, these patients are dealing with pain for a long time and there's just so much going on that we don't understand, or at least that most of us I don't think I've had a, a great experience, certainly not the level of understanding that you guys have. I agree with how you described you have to have organized thoughts or organized thinking. It's very easy to kind of find your way winding down a path. of, And these, these, these patients have lived with this pain for years, sometimes decades. And for them, it didn't happen in an organized way, right? It happened linearly over time. Details get missed, moved around because it's been such a traumatic event for them in so many ways. So I feel like that's one of my jobs is to kind of organize all this stuff that they're bringing to my office and say, okay, so here's the different boxes. Here's where we're going to try to put things in. Is that is that kind of how you work as well? Because it seems to be like you're, we're, we're trying to simplify a very complex thing without oversimplifying it, but with the, at least this is how I, how I work, with the intent of trying to solve it, provide treatment options to address each specific thing. Is that too simplistic a way to approach it? No, I think that to me that my advice for people who are seeing this kind of patients is to use the questionnaire, gather that information with the questionnaire, right? And then organize it in a way in which easy for you to follow. What do I do? And I, I try to think about system and organs, right? Once I gather the information, for example, my first paragraph and the history part of the, of the charting is about the GYN part. And then the next paragraph asks about pain with the genitourinary symptoms, you know, if they have pain with urination, when that happens and all that. And then I follow with the GI tract, you know, if they have pain with bowel movements, uh, change in consistency, you know, try to follow the wrong criteria. Then I ask about pain with intercourse and then I dig into that as well. And then I leave usually at the end, the pain that is not associated with any of the other things. That pain that they say, that pain is always there. It's on the right lower quadrant, the left lower quadrant, it's intermittent is described as stabbing, squeezing. Usually that pain is myofascial. If you ask about it, they're going to have pain. That pain will exacerbate when they get their periods, if they engage in intercourse, and they can clearly separate that pain from the usual cramps that they get from the periods. You can ask if they experience that pain with physical activity, when they exercise, when they lift, when they move, when they twist, bend, all that. And what makes that pain better? They'll say usually a heating pad or a hot or applying pressure, massaging the area. 
you know, those are cues that that will lead you to think that is something musculoskeletal. And then also, of course, exploring if the patient talks about burning sensation, razor blades, that's more neuropathic. So that will lead you to a different kind of line of thought. But again, when I'm writing down my notes, I like to keep it like kind of separate and kind of at the beginning, kind of have a sense, okay, so this patient has no symptoms related with their bowel. Excellent. You know, just move on. Next thing. Very rarely, I've seen patients that have chronic dysmenorrhea or chronic bowel symptoms or chronic bladder symptoms. Very rarely, I've seen them without myofascial pain. Usually, they will have myofascial pain. And I think that's one of the biggest diagnoses that we miss is that one, the musculoskeletal one. It's something that I don't think I've made a single diagnosis in residency. And then in fellowship, I think I diagnosed 100% of my patients with myofascial pain. I agree. I think the analogy I always use is if you spend the night puking because you ate some bad shrimp, the next morning, your stomach hurts. Well, it's not your stomach. It's your abdominal wall from doing 100 sit-ups over the toilet. Now, if you did that every night for 10 days out of every month, your abdominal wall muscles would be a mess. And to just ignore that, especially if that's been going on for years, is missing a huge, huge component of the pain. And it, and it also makes it challenging, I think, when a patient has dysmenorrhea and you provide medical treatment and they come back and say, I'm not having periods, but I still have pain every day. The medicine didn't work. Hold on, hold on. You know, and that's where I think I try to simplify things and put it in different components. Like I think using different words to describe the same thing that you're doing, which is with, with your note sections, which is okay. So gynecologic, urologic, GI, musculoskeletal, and neuropathic. And those are really like the big sort of boxes for me. Are there any other big boxes that we're missing here when we're talking about and again, these are very big, broad boxes, but generally speaking, I feel like the treatments kind of fall. And I, I, I make those boxes almost because that's kind of where the treatments fall, right? I think that it serves several purposes. And, and to me, that one of the biggest things that I've noticed, not only from the questioner, but when you start breaking down that way, is that the patients start seeing your thought process, right? They, they start kind of understanding the way how you're thinking. And a lot of times for them, that's an eye opener because they'll say, you know, with time, they'll come back and for follow-ups and they'll be like, you know, doctor, the endometriosis pain is great. I have no issues with that. You know, the IBS pain is great, but the muscle pain is the one that I still have. And I don't know, you know, they will develop that language, which is impressive without any kind of medical background. But that's just from really educating them and allowing opening that conversation and explaining the thought process. I think that that really helps them because it, it also helps them to understand why it's important to do physical therapy, right? At the same time as you're trying to control their periods and at the same time that you're trying to schedule a surgery to look for endometriosis and remove endometriosis lesion and at the same time that you're trying to bring down their central nervous system with CBT and, and you know, other medications, you know, so all these therapies in the end, which I'm, we'll talk a little bit more about it, it has to fall into a multimodal approach in the end, because that's the biggest thing with this kind of problems is that it's rarely just one, so we cannot treat it with just one way. It usually doesn't work that way. And I tell patients, you've had pain for 10, 12 years. It's gotten worse over that time. I would love a light switch, but we probably have to think about a dimmer switch. We're going to slowly try to turn it down over some period of time. I would love to be able to just turn it off, but Here's what I'd like us to think about. And, you know, and they have the option to go somewhere else. And I think folks 
understandably want a quick solution to this really long-term problem. And not to say that we don't owe it to them to try, but ultimately this is something that oftentimes doesn't get better overnight. And so, no, I think splitting it up into chunks, into different categories, I think to your point is a good one, which is allows them to see that a little improvement doesn't mean that this is as far as we're going to get. Like, okay, so we've dealt with now no periods. Okay, so now let's work on the next thing. Do you tend to do multiple treatments at once, like addressing, you know, gynecologic and neuropathic and musculoskeletal patient pain at one time? Do you try to like do one thing at a time so you know what's working? Like, because I think there's values to both approaches. What I was taught to do was to do what is called a shared decision model. Basically, you help the patient identify what their priorities are. Because one thing is that as a gynecologist, you might hear that story and your priority for that patient might be to stop her periods. But, you know, if we don't ask, if we don't talk with the patient, if we don't understand what their context is, you know, that might, that might not be her priority. Her priority might be to treat her myofascial pain because she needs to be able to sit down in the office six hours because otherwise she's going to get fired, right? That might be her priority at that time. So first of all, having that discussion, you know, and helping the patient defining what are their short-term goals and long-term goals, what is achievable with certain therapies, what is achievable with other therapies is, is an important part. Or access to. Patients may not have access to PT, whether exactly geographical, whether financial, whether time, you know, hey, I got to work. These are my hours. Like I cannot be at PT and not be at my job or what other responsibility I have. That's something we see a lot. Like I'll just do this and this for now, knowing that when time may open up, then I can have time to do PT. So yeah, I think that shared decision-making, again, you put a lot of good like names on some of the stuff. I think some of us do in other ways, but like that shared decision model, decision-making model, like, yeah, this is what we can offer. How I think all these things will help what makes sense to you to do next. Right. And, and it should be our job to help them guide that. But then definitely if the patient, usually they walk in with one diagnosis in mind and they leave with five, six diagnoses, right? And that's when you start thinking about your team and, and who do you plan to involve, right? And, and that's when really the educational part starts, which should always be first line of treatment is to educate patients. And a lot of times I, I've experienced that when I was outside in the community and when Rochester is that the lack of time, right? And be able like, but how do you take time to do the history and then to do the physical exam and then to educate the patient and then to talk about like, when do you get time for all that? And I feel that nowadays we have a lot of resources that we can use that could help and facilitate those steps, you know, that you have to go through. I do take some time in my visit to educate patients, but I usually, one of the biggest reasons why we built that website that we have built with Lambu and my partners here, publicpaineducation.com, we, is because of that. We created a series of short five, six minute videos for patients, which is for free for them to access. And we have educational series from something simple as what is pain and the difference between acute and chronic pain to more in detailed looking at conditions like good neurology, myofascial pain, IBS, all that stuff. And it's for patients. So usually I will tell them, go back. You know, these are the diagnoses that I think that we're, have, we're dealing with. Look at this videos, read the material that is there. We have hyperlinks to different kinds of resources. And the next time when they came back, hopefully they've done that so we can have more conversations about what they have. But that Educational part is very important because it helps reshaping their concept related to pain, you know, and understand what the treatment is. And and yes, at the same time, if they have dysmenorrhea, myofascial pain, 
sensitization, neurologist, I would start treating everything at once, you know, because it's trying to take care of the pain, which is what they're looking for, right? So it's very difficult to to just stick with one thing and expect that all the pain is going to go away. Again, it usually doesn't work that way. Yeah, I mean, I think the challenge of whether or not something's helping or not, do we add a medication that may or not be helping? I think, again, giving patients the opportunity to make that choice on their own and say, I'm willing to try these things, knowing that I want my pain addressed as quickly as possible versus like, I want to know what's going to work. I think all those things are important conversations to have with patients. So I, I think that's great. You mentioned other specialties. You've talked about psych and others. What does your pelvic pain program look like? What other specialties do you guys work closely with and, and how often are you referring out of your practice? Well, we're very lucky with the setting that we have here because everything is under the same roof. You know, we have five of us, right, gynecologists, and, you know, we have our own physical therapists, which are right next door, which is great because we communicate a lot. Like, if I see a patient that they, I know that they're going to see, I, you know, tell them, hey, you're going to see this person, this is what I'm thinking. Or the same thing, if they find something with a patient that they've been trying to help and they believe that they're stuck, they'll come to us and they're like, hey, you know, this patient is not doing this well, what else can we do? So it's great. We have right here also in our floor a pharmacist that is dedicated to the GYN team. And that has been great because, you know, especially when we're trying to treat patients that have sensitization, anxiety, depression, you know, those medications usually overlap and they're very complex. And then you have to deal with other medications that have other side effects. So having a pharmacist has been wonderful. We have a behavioral therapist also and a social worker who help us with our patients. And, you know, beyond that in the hospital, we have what other hospitals have. We have colorectal, we have gastroenterologists and urologists. Very rarely, and well, we have pain medicine as well, but rarely we have, we have to, you know, ask them for anything. We usually keep our patients here. Are they, are they in your physical office or are these just other people that you work this with? This is our in the building. Is this something that you just refer them like same day, they come down, or is this something you just set up appointments for a different day? Like We set up an appointment for a different date. Basically, what we do is when we first meet the patient, we kind of structure the kind of care that they're going to get. But the key thing that I think that makes a big difference, which is hard in the community, because again, in the community, you have your office. And again, I, I went through that experience, right? You refer them and you don't hear about from the patient until like three, four months afterwards, because that makes it's hard, right? It's hard to keep track of that you know, information and because you're not under the same roof. And that's the true definition of an interdisciplinary care is when you have people under the same roof, which is very challenging, right, to accomplish. But then the next best thing is a multidisciplinary approach, right? Where you have multiple specialists and you do your best to try to communicate with them. Because again, that's the reality of the clinical environment that we have. And, you know, there are other pelvic pain centers where they have a lot of specialists under the same roof, but definitely having them here makes it easier. But they make their appointments, you know, we help them make the appointments and they go and see the specialist, but we communicate. So if the patient is not doing that well, then you know, we bring them back and we're like, okay, so what's going on? What can we, what do we need to readdress? And we might not be the specialist addressing the issue, but there's someone in charge, right? Which is, I think, the the biggest part that they're missing in their care is having someone in charge because they're seeing the GI, they're seeing the GYN, they're seeing the PT, but there's no like, you know, everyone is trying to do their best, but there's no connection. It's having a wheel, a cycle of referrals without having a hub. Right. So I think having that spoke, that's how I describe sort of our role in pelvic pain. It's funny you use that analogy too, because there's got to be somebody in the middle. So the patients leave and go to all the specialists, but they have to come back to somebody. Is it the primary care? Is it you, the OBGYN or the pelvic pain specialist? 
who's the one who's kind of organizing it all? Otherwise, they just go GI to colorectal to urology to gynecology to pain management to anesthesia and all those. And it's like, wait, who's who's organizing all this? And I think that's a huge role for someone, especially someone who's specialized in pelvic pain, who can make sure it's all getting done, make sure it's all being coordinated, make sure all the treatment plans are sort of in concert with one another too. I think that's something that it does take time. And another reason why I'm going to sort of pump up our specialty here a little bit. These are things that without having folks who focus on pelvic pain, these patients get kind of moved around specialty to specialty and having those of us who do this on a regular basis, it is it does take time and you're spending, it sounds like what is an immense amount of time with your reviewing of their surveys and going through such a detailed history. This, this is not the same as a general OBGYN practice, not better or worse, just it's a different kind of practice and it's a different kind of problem. It requires a different type of solution. So, you know, you've talked about sort of the overall clinic setup. You've talked about sort of your approach, the psychosocial approach to pain. You've talked about sort of how you organize your thoughts and, and your history taking and also your sort of management approach. And we didn't get too, too much into the weeds, but I think we can do that probably in other multiple episodes for how we deal with musculoskeletal pain or how we deal with neuropathic pain, but understanding all the potential different components of pelvic pain. And then lastly, the role of the of the doctor in this situation or the provider to help organize all that. And I think that's like just sort of the organization, sort of the overall planning and a sense for our patients is such a crucial role in this because I do think hearing patients talk about how many different doctors they've seen and how many different ERs and different hospitals trying to find an answer, there's not been that one person who can just say, all right, you're home. We're going to get there. I don't have all the answers today. We'll get there, I think is something that a lot of patients that I've seen have just not had the opportunity to have. And it's interesting, not interesting, it's actually sad that that's the current situation, especially knowing that pelvic pain is as prevalent as conditions that everyone knows about, like asthma. You know, you ask, it's funny, I, I talk with friends that are not in health professions, and when they ask me, what do you do? And I'm like, well, I, I specialize in pelvic pain. They're like, you do what? They have no idea. But if, you know, if you talk about asthma, everyone knows about asthma. Everyone knows about migraines, right? And for a condition that is as more prevalent than those, there's very lack emphasis on the education part, you know, at every level, you know, not only health professionals, but even outside. And that is something that really, I'm I've, like, I've made that my mission to really try to reshape that. We need to do a better job in educating about pelvic pain because it's something that we see so frequently. We know the numbers. We know the statistics. We know how often we're operating on patients that suffer from persistent pelvic pain. And sometimes those surgeries are not a good option, you know? But again, like what they say, you know, you're trained to use a hammer. You see everything as an L. So you're just hammering everything. No, I think that's such a big discussion in our world, in the MIGS world. We have a, you know, a group of folks who, like you, are deep into the weeds on all the different possible causes of pain, endometriosis being one of them for sure. And those on the other side, a lot of them who are phenomenal surgeons, but take a very surgical approach to managing whether it's pelvic pain or endometriosis or both. And I tend to think a little bit more like I was trained, which is that there's a lot of possible causes and usually multiple causes that are playing you know, around each other. And so you can't just kind of look at, at this really complex problem with a simple mindset. You have to you have to really be able to organize your thoughts and, and look at this in a complex way. And yeah, surgery is going to be part of it in many cases. 
when a patient's come to see you for night, you know, and they've, they've had 19 surgeries, like you talked about the one you saw with Fred Howard, 10 surgeries. Is it possible that the other 10 surgeries just weren't the right surgery? Possibly, or maybe surgery is not the answer. You know, if that's your, if that's our study, the first 19 surgeries weren't successful. Maybe number 20 is not going to be the answer. Let's think about this in ways that maybe somebody hasn't thought about before. So it does take a different type of approach and understanding, but education is a huge part of it. Like, like, again, it's what you're finishing with here, but also what we started with, which is we had never been exposed to it. It was something we'd never seen before, felt like who's been keeping this from us. But ultimately, the more we can educate ourselves, the more we can educate our trainees and our colleagues and our peers who are doing this, and, we, and the more we can educate our patients to help them sort of find their solutions themselves. Because I think patients are very savvy. They're very aware of what's out there and to meet them where they are you know, they're the experts on them and, you know, we try to be experts on what we're doing here, but it's people like you and, and, our, and the colleagues we've mentioned and some of our, you know, the, the shoulders we stand on in our, in our specialty and our subspecialty. There's some people out there doing really, really important work. Grateful for folks like you that spend as much time and effort as you do to not only learn about these complex issues, but also go on and teach it. So thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you for the time here. I really appreciate it. Um, this is a topic that, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about. No, it's great. And best to you and, and your and your team down there. Tell everybody I said hey. And we look forward to having you back on the show sometime to go even deeper into this. But uh, thanks again for all your time. I will. Anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bolf, Nick Shellcross, Josh Spencer. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinski. Show notes and social media by Emma Landonwich and Lindsay Beecham. Administrative support provided by Jim Louis Kinnebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.